I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, as we settle in for the morning and come to our time in God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, the latter paragraph is where we will find ourselves today after several weeks out, of course, uh, around uh, Palm Sunday and Easter and, and church anniversary time. Last week we found ourselves back in our study of Hebrews and we'll be here, of course, until fall throughout the summer months, Hebrews 6. I would like to head us in the direction that the text is going by remembering with you a story from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. It's an interesting account there unfolds as Jesus is with a large crowd of people and he, he does a, a bit of teaching that's hard to understand. Some have called those the hard sayings of Jesus. And uh, things that if you and I were in the crowd, we would have struggled to understand. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean? Uh, is, that a, is that a figure of speech or, or, or what? And there's a, there's a moment described where a whole lot of people, it says a, a lot of people called disciples, they go by that name, they left, they walked away from Jesus. Now, you would expect, if you were thinking about the value of, my goodness, you want a crowd, uh, you would find Jesus running after them, right? And saying, no, come back. You misunderstood. <laughs> come on. I didn't mean it quite like that. But he doesn't. Instead, as people were leaving, he turns to those who stayed, and he says to them, well, are you going to leave too? It's a, it's a very interesting conversation. And this is the moment where, where Peter, who is typically well-known for sticking his foot in his mouth, you know, Peter, I mean, seriously, people say, Peter's going to talk, and you go, oh, no. Well, in this case, one of, there's a couple places where he really hits it, and this is one where, where Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love that. I love that. So today... We come to a text that is, that is representative of others in Hebrews that captures the main point of the book. That is, that God's people would, would be encouraged, that they would hold on to faith and hold on to Christ and, and not run and, and not give up when, when it seems that, that all else is against people of faith and against Christ and against his word and, and, and not run. No, don't. And so, so the text is, is all about that today. Lord, to whom shall we go? Do you have a better source of encouragement? No, no, you don't. I promise. There is none. And so we come to Christ. We run to Christ. The analogy is here in the text. We flee toward him. We run toward him. Because in Christ alone is that great source of encouragement that, that you need. I know we come today as a church family, uh, individuals, families, all uh, so many in need of encouragement, and this text provides it substantively. So I want to pray for us. We have a lot to look at today, and um, I'm excited about where we're going. I love this text, and uh, it is a privilege for us to look at it together. But would you pray with me, please, as we ask God's help in this? Our Father, how good it is to open the Word of God together. Indeed, uh, Christ is our sure and steady anchor, and we run toward you. We come to you. In a, in a sea that seems wild at times, we come to you. Father, I pray that you would help each of us as we 
are, are active listeners, active participants, worshipers, as we'd spend time in your word, all of us, worshiping and bringing hearts that are open to you, saying, Lord, teach me, direct my heart, break up the places in my heart that are hard, and allow me to hear the word of God and love it, and then in loving it to do it, and have my heart pointed in affection to the God who gave it. Lord, this is your work. We ask it of you today as we open the word of God together in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a number of things uh, then, if you have your your study notes in front of you, just a a look at how we will proceed. Some of these routinely there, a couple of words of review that talk about uh, the book of Hebrews and places we've been and reminders what the book is about. And then you come to a little paragraph called today's text that says a word about where we're going today. And you'll remember that at the latter part of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 in particular, there, were, there was a warning section. Hebrews is full of them, a lot of warnings. And it's sobering, as we saw, um, frightening in, in its own right. Made us sit up and pay attention. Well, uh, last week then with, with Tyler, we saw in verses 9 through 12, the, the writer then is turning the corner and saying, as we'll read in a moment, we, we, we feel better about you all, as, as the writer is, is uh, speaking to the current audience. We think there are things in you, we see things in you that point us to believe that you're saved, that you're really born again, you really, you really do know Christ. And so there's a, there's a shift that takes place away from that strongly worded warning, again, to reassurance and comfort and consolation. And you, you see on my, my notes, there's a little fill in there. Confidence, again, is expressing confidence in God's people. Now, I want to as well, under that heading, look with you at verse 18, okay, which is the point. It's the point today. It's kind of cheating in a sermon if I just tell you the main point right up front. That's not to discourage you to, you know, tell you to check out. I'm just telling you, this is where everything goes. The whole paragraph is built around verse 18, specifically the second half. That is, that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's the point. That's the point of this paragraph. All right, that we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, I should tell you that this text is um, not only one that I, I enjoy, I love very much, it is also the one from which we get our theme that we have used to cover the entire preaching series from Hebrews, Christ our anchor. It's built on this paragraph, all right? Because, as we'll see, uh, the, the term anchor, the analogy of an anchor, shows up in this text nowhere else in Hebrews. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But this is the paragraph in Hebrews where it uses that word picture, very vivid, and I think helpful to us. So verse 18, just remember as we go, that's really what the writer is aimed at. So I want to go back now and start reading at verse 9. And I do that, of course, to give a context, and it sets the stage for our main focus that will be verses 13 through 20. All right? So let's hear the word of God then. Uh, Hebrews 6, starting at verse 9. The writer says this, Though we speak in this way, and he's referring to that harder section that precedes, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Wow, okay. So, God's word, God's word as we read it uh, together. The term Melchizedek, of course, refers to an Old Testament figure, and I'm just telling you now, uh, that's the topic as we get into next week, chapter 7, into verse 1. Melchizedek, who is this guy, and what kind of name is that, and what does it mean, and why why do we keep talking about it in Hebrews? So next week, we're really going to take that on, so I'll say really nothing about that today. It really belongs thematically in where we're going to go next week. But but this text then, this this sure and steady anchor, uh, is, is something all of us need. Now, verse 12, uh, I included in my first heading, you see, under the topic, follow in the footsteps of patient, faithful believers. I include verse 12 because verse 12 is the springboard for the next three verses. It's talking about people who, who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And then he says, for example, he's going to tell us about that. Now, I want to I say a word about my two headings, okay? So the first one, as I mentioned, follow in the footsteps of patient, faithful believers. I want to talk about this for a minute before we come to the text. You notice that I said faithful instead of faithful, and I mean something different by it. Here's why. Sometimes, as we use the term faithful, and I love the word and the concept behind it, we're thinking many times about behavior, being faithful, staying at it, wonderful topic. But that's not this topic. This is about faith-filled believers. You see the difference between faithful in behavior and full of faith believers. These are people who are, who are captured by the faithfulness of God, and they are full of faith toward him. So that's really this first heading, and I'm going verses 12 through 15 under that heading. And then as you look at the other side of your page, uh, under the heading, God gives us two rock-solid reasons to trust him for time and eternity. That would be verses 16 through 20. So we'll, we'll deal with the text under those two, those two places. Now, under the, under the topic of patient, faithful believers, I want you to think about this with me, please. As you know, uh, these are days in which many feel like somebody switched the price tags, to use an old analogy, that, that things are just changing so rapidly, and I hardly know what to hold on to anymore. And my goodness sakes, is it ever going to get back? Nope, apparently not. Uh, probably no time soon. And man, these are, these are difficult times for so many people. 
I, I understand. Now, it has been said by someone far better at words than I that the worst thing to look at if you want to live by faith would be the things around you. In other words, track with this, don't be a newspaper reporter. Be a historian and a futurist. Let me explain this. Newspaper reporters look at what's going on around them, and that's what, that's what they write about. You write stories about this. It sells. And many people, many believers, many of God's people are struggling today because most of their time is spent looking around, and they say, man, what in the world is going on? This is changing. That's changing. Up and down, and there goes the world, and what's going to happen? And, and, and they're looking around. So it's like a newspaper reporter. And again, if you're a newspaper reporter, no harm, no foul. Uh, I don't mean that as a profession. Now, historian, what I mean is, and this text is an example of it. It's going to take us back, looking back, at, at the faithfulness of God and how God, how God cared for his people, how God was there every single time, how God knew what he was doing then, and I can have assurance he knows what he's doing today. So looking back, if you've, if you've known Christ for a while, no doubt you can look back if you'll do it and see times when God has kept you and protected you and been faithful to you and provided for you and met your needs. So, so this text helps us with a look back, and we'll do that together in a minute. And then the other part, the, the futurist part, is to look ahead at the promise of God. What has God said he will do tomorrow looking ahead? This text does both. It, it, in a sense, it warns us against looking only at the things around you. Don't be a newspaper reporter. Be a historian and then look to the future. Okay? This will make more sense as we move along, I promise. But I, I, I want to do a number of things here. So if you look at your sermon notes with me, this gives you a pattern for where we're going to go. So verse 12 then talks about not being sluggish, being imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now the writer is going to say, for example, okay? For example, let's talk about, oh, I don't know, Abraham. And he is then going to assume that we as the the, the readers or his original listeners, he's assuming that they know some things from the Old Testament. And I'm saying to you here on your sermon notes, we stand on the shoulders of others who've dared to believe God. And the writer is wanting to give us solid historical, theological reasons to do the same. And I want to ask you to do this with me today. I know that these are texts that are familiar to many of you. They are not as familiar with all But I would love us to to go back, and there are a couple of Old Testament texts under the heading of Abraham and Sarah that I want us to look at, to remember together the faithfulness of God in the past. And the writer of this book is assuming these are on the tip of your wonderful mind. So we're going to go there too. So if you would then, Genesis 12, I want to look at a couple things with you. For you to make sense of the Bible, we talk about understanding how the Word of God works. Uh, We talk about that often. And I, I remind us today that God's Word is telling one big story. It's not like, a, like an encyclopedia with just random collections of stories and things. No, no. The Word of God is telling a story from beginning to end. It's a story of God. It's the story of redemption from Genesis through Revelation. And so you need to know that the main points along the way. And in Genesis 12, uh, this little moment, it's, it's one that we refer to as the Abrahamic Covenant, and it follows right on the heels of God creating the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and then the flood of Noah, table of the nations, and so on. And you come then to Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. Look with me then at this little portion. It goes back a ways. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, of course, Abram, the name that Abraham had uh, at this point in his life, 
Uh, God said to him, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abrahamic covenant, a high point in the, in the whole history of redemption. God promises to Abraham three things, okay? And these are repeated and referenced throughout all the Bible, really. Land, descendants, seed, blessing, those three things. Now, you've heard me say this many times. I repeat things because it's part of what you do when you, when you want people to remember things. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 is one of the New Testament texts that references this. And it's a place where in the New Testament, uh, Paul, writing, of course, under the direction of the Spirit of God, he says that, that God preached the gospel to Abraham here in saying, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That, in other words, in the mind of God, that even as this is said, God has Messiah Jesus in mind. Paul uses the New Testament word for gospel in Galatians 3.8 to, to, to say God preached the good news in saying this. In the mind and heart of God, he's thinking, he's thinking about Messiah Jesus who was to come. Abraham hears it says, man, that sounds great. But of, of special interest to him was descendants. Because you know the story of Abraham, or if you do, Abraham and Sarah had no kids. And at this moment, you track with me, Abraham is 75, Sarah is 65. Any problems here? Yeah, usually at those ages, you don't have kids. So God says, you're going to have descendants. And Abraham says, fantastic. Been waiting all my life for this. I would love to have a child. And then, of course, the blessing is done. Abraham goes. Time goes. Time goes by. No kid. And of course, if you're 75, when you get a promise like that, you're going, wow, a little challenge here. Genesis 15, if you skip ahead here. Now, all of these, so important, and I think the writer to the Hebrews is assuming that his hearers know this. So we look at it together. Genesis 15, now, of course, we've, in chapter 14, just been introduced to Melchizedek. We'll be back to this text next week. But you come to chapter 15, and there's another moment where Abram meets with God. So we read, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So when I die, somebody else is going to get my stuff. And I think you said something about me having a kid, and the years go by. I mean, he's not complaining, really, loudly. He's just asking. Lord, baby time, hello, let's do this. Well, wow, Abram reflects on that again in verse 3. Now, starting verse 4, I, I love this. This is, I'm telling you what, this is frosting on the cake, it's chocolate in the ice cream and on the ice cream. This is brownies. This is such good stuff. And you know how much I love all those things. God says to him, this man, no, no, this man will not be your heir your own son shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Abram, look at the sky. Look at the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said, so shall your descendants be. That is, that is, that is a moment that just, I, I think, is marked out in history of mankind. Abram, look at the stars. Now, of course, God is calling Abram 
to look up, God having made the stars. Isaiah says he calls them all by name, and by his power not one of them is missing. So he knows all the stars. He says, Abram, count them. God can. He can't. If you'd only count the stars. Now, uh, again, an aside, I suppose, um, Sovereign Grace is a music group I love to listen to. I listen to everything they have. They have a, a, a CD out um, that talks about this. There's a song on there. If you, could o- if you could only count the stars, it's a glorious song, lifting up the God who keeps his promises. If you want a good song on that verse, you should look that song up. You can only count the stars. Okay, and then verse 6. That just, this is a verse that echoes down through people of faith from this time, from that time to this. Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That, that's a, this whole story, and of course that verse, Paul makes much of in Romans chapter 4 as he explains salvation by grace through faith. He references Galatians, or sorry, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, now track with me here. This is so significant. Um, at this moment, there's still no baby. There's no baby. Sometimes people say, and this may be you, or someone listening later. But listen, I need some evidences. And I understand the point. I get in conversations about evidences and proofs and uh, apologetics. Got it. And don't mind those conversations at all. But at this particular moment, Abraham, as I give you the reference here on your sermon notes, Romans 4, 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. That is, without evidence. There's no baby. Right? Abraham said... God, I believe your promise. Isn't that striking? We, we tend to think of ourselves as pretty smart. Maybe not true. No offense. I want some evidences, because my brain can clearly comprehend the Almighty. So I, I need more evidences and proofs. And my, my rational brain, which is really sizable, will rationally understand all that. I'll be able to figure it out. And again, I'm not against reasons and philosophy and properly understood. I'm not against any of those things. I'm just saying Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He said, God, I believe you. And this is so significant because we want to follow you know, Hebrews 6, 12. We want to follow in the steps of others who, who patiently were people of faith. And, and listen, right now, I don't know what your details are in your life. There may be things you're saying, God, I don't see that. I've been praying for how long? I don't know how long you have persevered in prayer, waiting for something, waiting for God to, to act or to do or provide or to change someone or you or to take something away or provide it. I don't know what that is for you. But I, 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 I know some things about prevailing in prayer for years, saying, God, How will it be? Respectful, yes. Asking again. Oh, God, be be there. Change that. Help. Fix. Start with me. And so here then, Abraham knows the promise, hasn't seen the promise fulfilled, and says, God, I believe you. I believe you. Now, what follows is an interesting account. We're not going to go through all the details of it. It is the the terms are specific and for a reason. They culturally fit. It's the cutting of a covenant. The cutting, in this case, referring to animals, it's a really interesting thing. We just use a notary these days, but this is a different time and a different place. The, the cutting of animals. Now, and, and watch this. It's on your sermon notes. This is a unilateral covenant. 
You, by that, I mean most covenants we make today are, have two sides. I keep my part, you keep yours. Okay? And we're both going to agree on the terms and have about 48 pages and a couple lawyers, and then we're going to sign on the dotted line, have it notarized, and then we'll see what happens. This is a unilateral covenant. It depends on one God, only him. So, so as the, the night uh, plays out, God himself, his presence, walks, walks down between these interesting little arrangements of animal parts, cuts a covenant. God himself makes a promise. In other words, this depends on me alone. I will keep my word. He doesn't say to Abraham, okay, now it's your turn. He says, no, unilateral, one way, I will keep my promise. So that's Genesis 15. Now, I want to go to one more text here in the Old Testament, and then I want to go back to Hebrews. And then as you read Hebrews 6 again, you see it with different eyes, with all of this on your mind. I go to Genesis 22 now, and in the intervening chapters, Yitzhak, Isaac has been born. After long, you know, 25 years of waiting, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. When Yitzhak, Isaac, is born, amazing. And here, of course, in the beginning part of chapter 22, uh, this is the moment when Abraham is willing to, to sacrifice his own son. Some picture of the gospel as their substitution. God provides a ram on the mount. God provides. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, we often say uh, other better ways to say that. In Hebrew, I know. But that's the idea there in Genesis 22, verse 14. The Lord will provide. Now, then in verse 8, uh, 15 then, we read, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, Abraham a second time from heaven and said, now watch this, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, here's a repetition, it repeats the Abrahamic covenant, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, Genesis 15, and as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the, the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, Paul would say, shows up again in this telling of the story. Now, God gave a promise. God gave an oath, unilateral covenant, and God kept his word. Now, if you come back then to Hebrews 6, I, I just want to, I want to read these texts again with just a couple of comments, and we'll shift then to, those, to, the, to the second half of that. With all of that as the background, and I think the writer is assuming you, you have those details uh, ready in your minds. So then he says, when God made a promise to Abraham, indeed, in chapter 12, since he had no one greater by whom to, swore, to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, there's that section. 25 years, 25 years of patiently waiting. 25 years, not being the newspaper reporter, because if he was a newspaper reporter, he'd have looked around and said, no baby. Instead, he looked at the promise of God and said, God, you said that you would be good. You said that you would honor your name and you would care for me, and I believe that you will. You said that you would, you would fulfill your promise specifically here, and I believe that you will. I'm going to trust you here. And he did. Now, you come then to verses 16 to 20 in my second bigger section, God giving us two rock-solid reasons to trust him for a time and eternity. So then you have, starting verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So now we move from promise to then oath. I want to I just think about this with you. I learned a few things in grade school about promises. And you, I think you uh, learned the same thing. 
So, for example, in grade school, I learned that if, if you're making a promise to somebody, you could put your hand behind your back and cross your fingers, and it would negate the whole thing. Did they do that? I, apparently, your grade school did the same thing. So you could put your, you, you weren't culpable. You could say whatever you wanted. And you, could, you could lie, but you didn't mean it because you had your fingers crossed. Uh, we also learned other ways of saying things like, um, cross my heart. Yeah, yeah. See, you never know if that's just your own grade school because you don't get out much when you're in grade school. Cross my heart and hope to die. We added sizzle and fry. Was that on yours? No? You just said cross my heart and hope to die? Stick a needle. Stick a needle. Oh, my goodness sakes. I missed that part. Wow. Huh. We have different ways, don't we, of saying, I mean it. That's, that's the whole point of those little grade school things is to say, no, really, no, really. Uh, I mean it. Now, why, listen, why do we need, as a culture, why do we need, humans, why do we need to have things like a notary? Why do we need to have a, a moment where you raise your, or you put your hand on the Bible or a holy book of your choosing, if you really want to be contemporary, and, and swear an oath? Why, this time I will tell the truth. For the next three days... Uh, as long as I'm under, uh, why do we have to do this? I'm going to be very blunt. <laughs> it's because of the human condition. The Bible describes us as sinful people. It doesn't mean there's nothing, I mean, you know, you're completely 100% awful. It means 100% of you is tainted by sin. That's the idea behind total depravity. Sometimes people say, yeah, but people do good things, and they do. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean that people can't do good things. You, you know, you help somebody, and you take the dog to, you know, you picked up on the side, or you take it, and you help the neighbor lady. All these things you do that are good, yes. But, but total depravity means that every part of my being is affected and infected with sin. So also our words right? Here's the problem. Here's why we do oaths at all. I hope I don't offend you. It's because we are liars. No, you say, oh, but come on. What I mean is, from the time we are young, we learn to tell much of the truth, but not all of it. We learn to mislead people. We learn to be technically true, but not completely honest. Some of it will quickly say, yeah, but you know what? There are reasons for this. Do you really want me to say, you know, the casserole? <laughs> no. I mean, it, it was awful. Do you really, I'm just going to tell the truth. Do you want me to? So we say, no, that was, I mean, it was, it was wonderful. Somebody says, look at the baby. And you don't want us to go, man. So you say, so you say, what a baby. Or that's quite a baby. Or that's really, wow, look at you. So you figure out a way. Um, husbands and wives do this all the time. Like, yeah, that's, that's man, yeah, if you, well, if, if you like the dress, you should buy it. Because you won't say, oh, my goodness sakes, no, that looks, you won't say it because you're, 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 anyway. I'm not talking about all of those. I'm saying, I'm saying we, we, not on those things. We protect ourselves by what we say. We tell much, but not all. We, we mislead. And so to this, to this human generation, 
that struggles with truth-telling. Oh, we need a Savior, don't we? If, if one thing, James would say this, James 3, if, if one thing points you to the need for Christ, it should be the way you talk, your tongue, right? Just, just listen to yourself. Oh, Lord, save me, starting with my tongue. Yes, need for the gospel. Well, to, to this, to, to humanity, God, who, listen, he doesn't need to make an oath to say, and I really am telling the truth because he never lies, Titus. Paul says to Titus, God, who cannot lie. See, he cannot lie. So there's no reason, in a sense, for God to give an oath, is there? He gave his word, done. But to accommodate all of us who, 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 who say, really? Do you mean that? God says, okay, I will, I will step into your, into your world. And I will not only have made a promise, but I will make an oath. I will swear by, by, by myself. When we put our hand on a Bible, that, that's what we're doing. Is we're wanting to swear by something, something holy, something greater than you. You don't say, um, somebody needs to swear an oath. Anybody have a stack of notebook paper? You don't do that. You look around for something that would say, anchor you. Do you say, swear on my mother's grave? You swear, you swear on something bigger than, better than you. As an attempt to say, for this moment, I'll tell the truth. Okay, so, so God then, verse 16, people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. Do you swear that that's true? I swear it's true. Okay. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Necessary? Well, only to all of us. So that by two, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are the two unchangeable things? Well, his word and his oath. His word, I said it, and I swear by myself, his oath. One was enough. Do you, see, do you see how much God wants you to trust him? Do you see this? When God says, if you know Christ is your Savior, I will keep you. Right? Do you see how much he wants you to believe that? I will keep you. I will hold on to you. Because if it were up to you, you would never make it. So I will keep you. God says, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Romans 8. Nothing. John 10. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. So, so, so why? Why do we struggle? Oh, Lord, help me to believe you. Two unchangeable things, his word, his oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, that we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Wow, so I'm going to look back, and I'm going to see that God keeps his word. He just does. That's what he does. And I'm going to look ahead to other promises. You know, there's, the Bible tells us some things. The Bible tells us that there's going to come a day, and then there's, Skies are going to be rent asunder, and Christ will return. Details people discuss. I know. I got it. I discuss them. But the return of Christ is kind of a big deal. 
Second Peter 3, there will be those saying, seriously, the promise of his coming since the fathers fell asleep. Where, where is this? Peter says, oh, no, he'll keep his word. He'll keep his, he'll keep his word. He will. He will. Every promise he's made, he'll keep. He'll keep. He will. He'll care for you. He'll do good for you. He'll guide you. He'll, oh, I tell you what, I, I think about these things. Um, as a church family goes through life, there are moments in particular when you are extra glad that you can say, God, I'm holding on to you, and I'm trusting here that you are good and that you know, that you know what you are doing. I'm trusting you here with all that I have. I'm trusting you that you are good and you know. I was thinking about that. That's where my mind went quickly uh, uh, yesterday, I think it was, early when I got the word that Jocelyn's mom died in a car accident, 49 years old. No, come on. Come on. Oh. Jocelyn and Chris heading right now back east to be with their family. But my heart just ran to them as a parent, as a grandparent, as a kid. Oh, Lord. 49 God, care for Jocelyn, care for Chris, care for their family. Remind them that you're good. Remind them that you know, right? And it's something different for you, probably. We join them, of course, in prayer, caring for them. But others, uh, not that long ago, just a couple weeks ago, Daniel, Daniel's dad, wow, gone, young. Lord, uh, what's that? Again, you have different details. And again, you're, 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 you're pressed to say, God, I believe that you're good. All my eggs are in this basket. I believe that you're good and that you know what you're doing and I trust you. I trust you. Can I explain it? Oh, no, not at all. But I believe you. I do. I believe you. Oh, this is good. I'm putting your song sheet there, a couple of her song sheet. Your sermon notes, a couple of things. A song there. I'm referencing the, 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 the old hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less, the writer says, than Jesus' blood and, and his righteousness. And then a verse or two later, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in, that, in the whelming flood. When all about my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. You'd think that the writer had just read Hebrews 6. I suspect so. I, I have there a note uh, to look with you at verse 18. We who have fled for refuge. I love that phrase. It captures the gospel. It captures practicality. We have fled for refuge. That is, we've forsaken all other sources of hope. We've abandoned trusting in ourselves. We've given up on pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. To be saved is to flee, you see this, from all false hopes of human merit and to turn from all the false hopes of this world to find true joy and lasting peace, not in possessions or experiences. To trust Christ and him alone. Now, here, here's, here's the thing. Listen, to, 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 this, I said this is like the gospel. It is. To flee for refuge in, in the very sense, to come to Christ, please get this, is to say it isn't 95% Jesus, 5% me, because generally I'm a pretty nice person. Right? No, no, it's Christ 100% to get you into God's heaven, his righteousness alone. We quickly say, yeah, but, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm kind of nice once in a while. Periodically, Thursdays, I'm okay. Come on, isn't, doesn't my righteousness count for something? I mean, a little, how about 5%? 95% Jesus, 5%. I mean, come on, what's not to like? How about that? 
The Bible comes along and says, no, no, no. All our righteousness, right? All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. No, it's Christ and his righteousness only that earns merit before God. So I trust Christ and him alone. That means I have fled for refuge. I have come and I said, oh God, I have no other, nothing else. I have nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I have nothing else. My bucket, my bucket to say, God, can I come into your heaven? It isn't filled with anything from me. I don't have photo albums in there. I don't have a list of my good deeds. I don't have the nice things I did, you know, once in a while. Nothing. It's Christ in him alone. Put the bucket down of all the stuff you've done. Trust nothing about you. that That is what it means to be saved. It is to say it is Christ. It is him alone who saves me from the penalty of my sin. It's Christ in him alone. So to, to, to flee for refuge, oh, this is so good. We who have fled for refuge, I'm a refugee from all of that, that I might have strong encouragement. If it counted on me, there would be no encouragement. If I'm counting on Christ in him alone, oh, there is encouragement indeed. Now, verse 19 and 20 then, as we come toward an end, of this text, we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. Now, that term anchor, then, as I mentioned, only use in Hebrews, and in fact, uh, more than this, um, it's used four times in the New Testament, three of those in, in the book of Acts, talking about Paul on his journey to Rome, where there are anchors and so on, actual sh- sailing ships. This is the only other time in the whole New Testament that this analogy is used to tell you to have firm faith. This is it. Uh, an anchor of the soul. An anchor, um, and an anchor, of course, has two parts. It's got a, well, it's got a, something it's anchored to. Has something on each, either end of the anchor, the rope. I, I, I know some of you, having served Navy time, have seen some really, really big anchors. Now, I'm visiting the USS Missouri as a as a boy, uh, anchored there in the shipyard at Puget Sound. Yeah, uh, I saw pretty big anchors on that battleship. My own experience has been more like half a block of uh, cement and a yellow nylon rope to drop it over the side of a boat to fish. Uh, That's about it. That's the biggest anchor I've ever had to personally deal with. This is a bigger anchor. It's an anchor of the soul. And I just want you to notice with me uh, where the ends are. So one is attached to your soul, and the other end goes right into the presence of God. You see that? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So this anchor... This anchor is connecting my soul to the very presence of God. I, I want to ask you this, and I know you'll get the answer right. Who holds on to whom? Is, is it I'm holding on to Christ, or is it Christ holding on to me? It's that one, isn't it? Christ is the one who holds us. He anchors us to him. Indeed. Now, there's a little word picture here. I'll touch on it briefly, but it shows up again in Hebrews, so I know we'll be back to this topic. The inner place behind the curtain. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of, of, of dressing of the Old Testament uh, tabernacle as a, as a picture of a greater reality. And we've spoken about this, the, old, the tent in the Old Testament, where there was a holy place, and then there was a holy of holies, and there was a curtain in between. Ark of the Covenant back there, and once a year, Yom Kippur, a high priest would go into that that back place, the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, just one once a year to atone for the, the sins of the people for that year. Other sacrifices taking place all the time. 
All those animal sacrifices, as we'll see in the chapters ahead, covered sin, couldn't take it away. You understand that? Uh, no one was ever saved by animal sacrifices. Any time and always, it has only been the blood of Jesus who, who, who pays for our sin. Christ alone came, paid for all sin for all time. His blood shed for us on the cross. Well, the idea here, the hope that goes into the inner place behind the curtain, Hebrews will tell us that those human places, the tent, it's, it's, those were never meant to be an end in themselves. They're representative of a greater reality. You can wrap your head around it. Start thinking about this. It's, it's, it's a picture of a greater reality, the very presence of God as the true holy of holies, the immediate presence of God. The holy of holies was a very holy place, but it was made by people. But it was, it was figurative of a greater reality, the very presence of God. And I'm just telling us this for our purposes today. That anchor connects the very presence of God with your soul, and he holds on to you. That's the part you need to get a hold of today. Christ holds on to me. I trust him as my savior. I do. And he holds on to me. I was raised with a bunch of songs. I'm not going to read them all today. I brought a few. A whole bunch of songs that use anchor. They're part of my heritage growing up. Songwriter after songwriter found here reason to sing. I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. Jesus has gone as a forerunner. He's the one who goes ahead assuring a good entrance for all those who follow him, as indeed we someday will. I close with this. Um, In the catacombs of Rome, um, there's a section where there are dozens and dozens of anchors drawn or carved into the, the limestone. Do you know that? Some of you have probably been there. There's a section of the catacombs where early believers met underground in threat of their life. Maybe a sixth grade kid, I don't know, started etching on the side an anchor. Somebody said, good idea, kid. Dozens and dozens of them. Could it be that that's where they heard this for the first time? We have a sure and steady anchor. And there in the dark, they said, yes, we do. Jesus, Jesus. I'd love to pray for us. I hope that you know Christ. I do. love to talk to you about that. If that is not something you know for sure, But if you'd stand with me, uh, I'd love for us to close our time in God's word with prayer. Father, thank you so much for your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this section. Thank you for the look back as historians where we see you are faithful to your word. As we look ahead, know that every promise you've ever made, you're going to keep. Father, thank you for this. Would you anchor us in you? Keep us steady in the times right now when the winds blow, and they are, and they do, and they will. Keep us holding on to Christ. Bless your people. Thank you for those who've worshipped with us throughout the morning and uh, those who joined us last hour online. We're so grateful to reach beyond our own community and around the world. And we thank you and pray for your good work in the hearts of each person who's heard your word today. Thank you, our Father, for a great Savior. And we pray together in his name, Jesus. Amen.